But in order to understand what's going on in this sermon, you need to know this was part of a mosaic. It was part of a larger whole. So, for example, this is what was preached at youth camp. Everything was about love. We began with Ed Moore from North Shore Baptist Church preaching, Love the Lord your God. That evening, Sunday evening of last week, I was preaching, Love Defined, Love Is, from 1 Corinthians 13. The next morning, Matt Gibson, who is from a church in western New York, preached, Love Your Family. That was my personal favorite message of the entire week. That evening, I preached on, God Loves God. That is the sermon you will hear in a few minutes. Alec Millen, from a church in Lancaster, Pennsylvania, preached, Love Your Friends and Love Your Enemies. Harry Fujiwara preached, Behold, What Manner of Love, speaking of the kind of love that God has for both those who are elect and for those who are not. And then we learned about Love Your Church. Harry Fujiwara also preached that. He's from First Baptist Church in New York City. Garrett Connor from a church in Maryland is the pastor there. He preached, preached a sermon that is entitled, Sinners in the Hands of a Loving God. Seth Fuller preached Love for the Lost. That may have been objectively the best sermon all week. Cade McDonald, the youth minister at North Shore Baptist, preached two sermons in a row. Uh, Thursday evening, he preached God demonstrates his love and expressed to us how God shows love to us. And then Cade McDonald continued the next morning to preach love the one you're with in regards to love in relation to marriage and dating. The last sermon Friday evening was from Ed Moore, pastor of North Shore Baptist Church, God loves righteousness. And so today what we are going to do is we are going to continue in considering love by allowing me to be loved by you, by your graciousness, and allowing me to preach a sermon that I had already preached at camp so that I didn't have to spend all night last night um, writing a sermon, but instead sleeping. So thank you for your grace in that. There's a couple things I'm going to need for you in order for you to enjoy this sermon and hear it well. First of all, know that this sermon was preached to youth students. So first of all, for you students who were at youth camp, the way that you need to um, hear this sermon is by l listening really well again. I know that it's hard sometimes to listen to something that you've heard before and hear it again, but I promise you, if you do, I think it will be good for you. I think that you will still learn things that you missed at camp. And for those of you who are not at youth camp, those who did not attend with us, regardless of your age, I need you to rewind the clock and imagine that you are a youth student, that you are a teenager. And now for some of you, that means rewinding the clock a few years. For some of you, that means rewinding the clock many years. But you need to know that this is not the style that I generally preach in here. So there may be some illustrations that make more sense to teenagers, but just put yourselves in their shoes and I believe you'll understand. There are a few illustrations that I'm just going to describe for you because it will be difficult for me to reveal them to you, starting with the fact that when I was at camp, I carried a backpack around with me all the time because I had my things in it, and I got up there with my backpack, and I told the students at the beginning, I love my backpack. It's my favorite backpack that I've ever owned. A friend of mine from North Carolina gave it to me a few months ago, and it's better than any other backpack that I've ever had. I love that backpack. And with that, I said, let's pray. So let's pray. Lord God, we ask that you would please bless the preaching of your word this morning. We thank you for the incredible ministry over the last eight days at youth camp, and we just ask that today you would use one of those sermons to bless us, to transform us, to enlighten us, and to reveal to us your love. And God, I pray that in all of these things you would cause us to have a reflex of love for you, that in receiving and understanding your love for us, that we would respond with a heart filled with love for Jesus Christ, your Son, and for who you are. In Jesus' name we pray. 
Amen. All the way back in 2010, I was working at a youth, as a youth minister at North Shore Baptist Church in Queens. And that building had uh, a relatively, in the back where I worked, there was like a one level, one story part of the building. And then next to us, there was a three story townhouse. And there was a man who lived in that townhouse that did not like our church. He was an angry man. He was an aggressive man. He was very opposed. We ended up getting a um, camera system there for the church, a security system, because twice he slit the tires of my car for parking beside our church near his house. It wasn't in front of his house. I was just invisible distance from his house. And so he did not like our church and slipped my tires. Sometimes in the winter, he would shovel snow off of his roof onto ours. He would, and when I was in the office, it sounded like there was, uh, you know, the ceiling was going to collapse in on us, just this thud and everything would begin to shake. Well, one time in 2010, it was June, I started hearing this rumbling, this crazy sound in my office. And I, I thought, you know, there's no snow outside. What could this possibly be? And I thought maybe he's throwing garbage from his roof onto our roof. And I would not put it past him. He did things like that often. But it wasn't garbage. In fact, what it was, was an earthquake in New York City. There was an earthquake in June of 2010, and my room began to shudder a little bit, and things started to shiver and shake just a slight bit on the walls. But you know what? It was not a very big earthquake. In fact, most people in New York didn't even realize it happened because they're moving all the time. But you know what's really crazy about that scenario is that the earthquake that I felt in my office, the one that I thought was garbage on the roof of my office, that earthquake actually took place in Vermont near the Canadian border, about 400 miles away from New York City. But even though the epicenter was all the way up there, I could even feel the ripple effects from it in New York. Uh, At camp, we considered for the whole week sermons about love. When we are preaching the word of God, we are often talking about love. The sermons that we hear and the lessons that we learn and the scriptures that we study are often teaching us things about loving our enemies and loving our friends and loving our churches and loving our families. There are so many facets of love, and they're all important, and they are all life-changing. But if you want to know the epicenter of love, then you need to listen really closely to what I'm telling you today. It would literally be impossible for me to overstate the value of the truths that I'm going to express. We're going to be lifting our eyes to the glory of God himself. Now, this is a very difficult sermon to grasp. It is dealing with rich and powerful philosophical theological truths, and they are the most foundational. So you're going to have to stick with me closely. You're going to have to listen carefully because we are going to be attempting to do something incredible. We are going to attempt to grab a deeper understanding of the God of the universe who is infinite in his existence. His ways are higher than our ways. His thoughts are higher than our thoughts. So what we're going to do is we're going to break this down as simply as I can in terms of outline. Since the information is so rich and powerful, the outline is going to be super simple, like stupid simple. It is number one, point number one, God. Point number two, is, and point number three, love. Let's begin with God. In order to properly understand anything, 
we have to start with God. Now, I'm not just talking about theology or doctrine. I'm not just talking about the Bible. I'm talking about literally everything that exists. If you want to understand anything, it begins with God. We have to start with God because God is the only thing in the universe that is not contingent, meaning that everything else in the universe depends completely on him for its existence. We're going to play a game, a game of Pictionary. And so for you, I have drawn up a picture. It's up here on the screen. Can anybody tell me what is in this picture, what this picture is? What did you say? A Petri dish. What did you say? Somebody got inside information from camp. The answer is correct. The answer is everything. That picture is my excellent artwork, my drawing of the representation of everything that exists. That is the universe, the cosmos, everything that exists, everything that God created, visible and invisible. That is the entirety of everything that is. Now, the thing is, everyone in the universe, let's keep that up there for a little while, everyone in the world understands this circle in different ways. Everyone has a different religious picture of what's happening here. Some will look at this picture as atheists and they will say, this circle is all that is and there is no God. That's their perspective. There's also a group of people called pantheists. That would be people that are like Hindus, Buddhists, anything in the pantheistic, monistic religions. That is somebody who believes that the circle is God. All that exists collectively is God. Animism believes that the universe and all that is in it exists and that God works and lives within it. Usually that's like a spiritist religion, like tribal type religions. Deism is a little different. Deism now introduced the idea of a God, a singular God, and it believes that God is outside of that circle and that God created that circle, but that God just left it to do whatever it was going to do. He made it and then he forgot it or just wanted to watch it. This is called the watchmaker theory sometimes. And then there's another group of beliefs called theism. This would be the theistic religions of Islam and Judaism and Christianity. Theism teaches that God exists outside and before all of these things and that he made all of these things, but that he also involves himself within all of these things. What sets Christianity apart from the other theistic religions of the Bible is this. The central difference between us and Judaism or us and uh, Islam or us and any of the Christianity cults like uh, Mormonism or Jehovah's Witnesses is this. We see slide two, Dan. This is the thing that makes us different. We believe in the Trinity, that there are three persons of the Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. You'll notice that the Father is God, the Son is God, the Holy Spirit is God, but the Father is not the Son, and the Son is not the Spirit, and the Spirit is not the Father, and all of those vice versa. We believe that of one God that exists in three persons. Well, how can I illustrate that to you? I can't illustrate that to you. And the reason that I can't illustrate this to you is because of the previous slide that I showed you, because of that circle, because there is nothing in the created universe that is like God. Everything else is contingent, and so nothing perfectly represents him. There is nothing in the universe in this sense that could illustrate him because of his realm of absolute infinitude. A lot of times people get hung up on the math of all of this. They struggle with the idea of the Trinity because they think in their mind, one plus one plus one equals one. 
That makes no sense, and it troubles them, and they can't comprehend the idea of God. But God is not like the number one because he is not like anything else. He is not like one rock or one tree. He is one God. So it is not like one plus one plus one equals one because God is not like anything else that is one. God is infinite. And so for those who are more mathematically minded, what is infinity plus infinity plus infinity? It is infinity. The Trinity is that the infinite Father is God, and the infinite Son is God, and the infinite Holy Spirit is God, one God in three persons. The Trinity is higher than human reason can always comprehend, but that does not mean it is unreasonable. It just means that our puny, little, tiny, finite, limited minds can only barely begin to understand or grasp the limitlessness of our God. That's point number one, God. Point number two is the word is. Now, I think that most people, not just students at youth group, not just teenagers, but most people, even most believers, do not understand the word is in the sentence the Bible gives us, God is love. And I don't think people understand it for two main reasons. First is because of the nature of time that is necessitated by that word. Time, or to be more precise, because of eternity. Asaph, stand up. If anybody doesn't know Asaph, Asaph is 12. He turned 12 last week right before camp. Asaph, you can sit down. Asaph is 12. Ten days ago, Asaph was 11. It feels like 20 days ago, he was one year old. But things change, and time moves. And what you are now, you will not be in one year. He is 12, but he will be 13, and Lord willing, one day he will be 99. Right now, you are awake, Rob. Right now, you are awake. I don't know what's going to happen in 20 minutes, but right now, you are awake. When we were at camp, there were mountains outside of the windows. And I said, look, right outside of the window, right outside there, you see the mountains. And they exist. And they have existed a lot longer than you have, and they will probably be there long after you are gone. But Psalm chapter 90, verse 2 says this, Before the mountains were brought forth, or you ever had formed the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. Does that mean that he just exists within, inside time? Of course not. It means from eternity past to eternity future, he is God. He is longer lasting than the mountains themselves. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever, Hebrews 13, 8. Malachi verse, chapter 3, verse 6 says, For I, the Lord, do not change. When it says that God is love, it means that God has always been love and that God will always be love. It is an unchanging state. It is permanent. God is love in a way that we never view anything else being. He is in a permanent state condition of love. But the scripture does not say that God is wrath. Well, why not? It does not say that God is mercy. Well, why not? Because those attributes and many others can only be displayed once that circle comes into existence. Once that picture I first showed you of everything else comes into existence, then God can display wrath, and then he can show mercy because those things require for there to be someone else for him to show wrath and someone for him to show mercy. It requires sin to exist in order to display them. Let me explain it like this. Islam and Judaism 
do not have the ability to say that God is love. They cannot say that, and they do not say that, and they cannot do that because they do not believe that there was a trinity in existence before creation. They do not believe there was anyone for whom God to love before the creation of that circle that I displayed to you. Don't take my word for this. Let's see what the Bible has to say about God loving God in eternity past. Could we say that God loved God before the universe? John 17, 24. Jesus said, Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me. Why? Because you loved me. When? Before the foundation of the world. God has loved God even into eternity past. So the first thing that you need to understand about the word is in the phrase God is love is that it means God has loved forever including the fact that God has loved God forever. And that means God will love God forever. So the Trinity has been showing love to each other forever. So let's look at slide three there, Dan. Notice I made a slight change on my iPad as best I could at camp with the limited conditions to show you that not only is the Father not the Son, but the Father loves the Son, and the Father loves the Spirit, and the Spirit loves the Son, and the Son loves the Spirit. They have been perfectly and eternally loving one another. The second reason that you don't understand the word is in the sentence, God is love, is because we often don't understand the extremity of something. In, in particular, you do not understand the extremity of God's love. You don't understand the infinity of it. Now, I'm not just talking about the fact that you don't realize how big it is, which is true, you don't. But I'm talking about it more than that. I'm talking about the varying level of degrees. In order to explain this, let me shift to talk about another of God's attributes for just a minute because it's easier, easier to visualize. God can lift anything that he wants without trying. Now for us, we can't do that. And we often, like we talked about not too long ago when studying Psalm 139, we talk about the fact that we like to compare strength by talking about how much we can lift. So at camp, I had a, a guy at camp, a senior named Caleb Ives, this big, tough, strong man of a student, I had him come forward and I said, all right, I want you to lift some things. And I gave him some small things. I said, can you lift this? Yes. And I gave him a bigger thing. Can you lift this? And then I said, okay, can you lift me? And I turned around and I put my arms like this and I was expecting him to grab me around my arms. And instead he grabbed me right under my solar plexus and he lifted me up. And I'm not doing that today because I'd like to be able to breathe after I give this illustration. And he could lift me up. And I was like, wow, that's incredible. You must be really, really strong. And then I said, okay, now prove it. Lift the building up. And he obviously he's like, oh, I can't do that. And so he just went and sat down. Well, we compare strength by picking up things that are incredibly small. The varying level of degrees between what I can do physically and what you can do physically, whether you are much stronger than me or much less strong than me in an earthly sense, isn't really that big of a difference. God upholds the universe by the word of his power. He doesn't even break a sweat. He doesn't even use physical labor. He just speaks it, and it does. And notice there's no difference of difficulty for him to pick up a grub or to pick up a galaxy. It's no difference in difficulty. If he does it, he does it fully. He does it perfectly. And God's love is exactly like that. There is no variance in terms of extremity. It is either 100% or it is nothing. Whatever God loves, he loves it with a perfect, endless, unshakable, infinite love that never diminishes. It is always 100%. When we say that God is love, we are saying that God's love is eternal and that it is 
infinite, which brings us now to the word love in that verse. So point number three, love. We have seen that God has always loved God, but what we're going to do in the last point is consider how this has played itself out and how it has brought that eternal love into creation. How has God's love for God been displayed on earth? God the Father has always loved God the Son. We already saw a verse about that. In creation and in time, that love is most clearly seen in the way that the Father glorifies the Son. Jesus said in John 8:50, I do not seek my own glory. There is one who seeks it, and he is the judge. And if you jump down just a few verses to 54, he adds, If I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is my Father who glorifies me, of whom you say, He is our God. Do you see this? The Father loves the Son, how? By glorifying Him. Well, what do I mean by glorify? How do you give glory? I mean that the Father is making the beauty and the majesty and the worth of Jesus shine forth into the creation, into that circle that we made. That's what it means to give him glory. He is making the worth of Jesus known to the creation that he made. A couple things that we need to consider here uh, is that God loved Jesus Christ, the Son, in a, such a way that he displayed that glory in particular ways to some of his disciples. I want to look at one example of that, just one. There's a lot we could consider. I'm going to show you one that we find in Matthew 17. At, at this point, Jesus takes a few of his closest friends up onto a mountain, his three disciples that were nearest to him. He takes them up onto the mountain, and he shows them a piece of his glory. It says in Matthew 17 too, And he was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as light. Now, I don't know how many of you have ever tried this, but have you ever just stared at the sun for a while? Don't do it. It's a bad idea because what happens is eventually you have to turn away. It's just too bright. Jesus was shining like the sun. You cannot even have direct visual perspective of him because he is radiating with such beauty. You learn that staring at the sun is painful if you look at it for too long. They had to pull back from staring at Jesus because the beauty of Jesus was slightly revealed. That earthly covering, that earthly tint of Jesus Christ was just slightly pulled back for a moment and it was so powerful nobody could even look directly at him. Perhaps you know that the other two people showed up on the mountain. There was Moses and there was Elijah. Both had been dead for hundreds of years, in Moses' case for about 1,400 years. And they were there having a conversation with Jesus about the things that must soon take place. And Moses and Elijah, I mean, realistically, these are two of the most important people that have ever lived in the history of the world. Moses is the figurehead of the Old Covenant law. And Elijah is the figurehead of the Old Covenant prophets. But God did not say of Elijah or of Moses, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. But in Matthew 17, 5, God the Father spoke to all of them present and said, this is my beloved son, speaking of Jesus, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. Circle in your Bibles if you ever come to that passage again. This is my what? Beloved. This is the son that I love. God the Father loves the Son. The Father loves the Son by glorifying Him and by making the name of Jesus shine into the world 
But he also loves the son by giving authority of all creation. That whole circle I showed you, he has given that creation to Jesus. John 3, 35. The father loves the son and has given all things into his hand. He loves the son by giving him all things. God the son has always loved God the father. Well, how did Jesus show that he loved the father? He displayed love in obedience to the Father. He always obeyed. He always submitted his will to the Father's will. John 14, 31, Jesus said, I love the Father and do exactly what my Father has commanded me. John 5, 19, truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. When you put these two things together, it shows that Jesus always and only did what he knew would please the Father. His love was displayed by obedience. He also showed love by depending upon the Father. My favorite example of this, of course, is in Mark 1, where Jesus has healed Peter's mother-in-law, and now everyone is trying to show up to the house to get healed. And that next morning, Jesus is gone. Everyone's knocking on the door. They're all looking for him. And it says the disciples knew where to find him. So they went out onto a hilltop and found him praying. Do you know what this means? It means if they knew where he was, it's not because he told them. It's clear in the text. It's because he had a pattern of going to this place. He had a pattern of praying. So they knew what to expect. They knew that Jesus prayed. We see pr Jesus praying all throughout the scriptures as a way to commune with and rely upon his father. We need to also know that we are to love the Lord our God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. But you need to know that you don't do that. You fall short in that, but Jesus never did. He always loved the Father perfectly. You are not loving in that sense, but he is. He has always perfectly and properly loved God. Jesus loved the Father with all his heart, soul, mind, and strength. There was never one thing that he did out of the boundaries of his Father's will. His life, his words, his actions, his thoughts, they were all designed as a way to love his Father. The Holy Spirit has also loved the Father and the Son, and he displayed that love in the beginning by, or by being sent, rather, by the Father and by the Son, and by always pointing attention to the Son. Now, we can spend a lot of hot time here, but in order to display this, we're going to look at uh, one final moment that we see this on display. One of the most incredible moments in the life of Jesus. This is one of the most incredible moments in all of history. This is a greater moment than the parting of the Red Sea. This is a greater moment than... Elijah calling fire down from heaven. This is the moment when the Father and the Son and the Spirit were all present and observable by human senses. It was at the baptism of Jesus. It was there that it says that the sky broke open and that the Spirit of God came and descended onto Jesus. And the Son of God went under the water and the Father spoke. They were all visible by the human senses, hearing and seeing. Now, here's what's really important. In that, you see love. The Father was loving the Son by glorifying Him, by declaring, this is my beloved Son. That's love. And the Son was loving the Father by obeying Him. I must do this to fulfill all righteousness by undergoing the water, which was a picture of His coming death. And the Spirit was loving the Father by being sent and loving the Son by coming to bring glory and attention to Him. The Father loves the Son, the Son loves the Father, the Spirit loves the Father and the Son. In that picture, we see them all. So do you get it? God loves God. But the biggest way that the Son loved the Father was by being obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. I want you to notice that the eternal love of God has centered and fixed its focus on the cross. 
John 10, 17. For this reason, the Father loves me. For this reason, the Father loves me. Because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. The focus of God's love, the attention of it, is centered on the cross. God loves the Son because the Son is willing to sacrifice to make a people for himself. The son loved the father so much that he was willing to obey even when the father told him to go to the cross. Do you understand how violent the cross was? Not just the physical violence, not just the outward expression of physical pain that Jesus took into his body, not just the beatings and the whippings and the the torture that he underwent, not just the nails through his hands and the crown of thorns on his head, not just the spear in his side. It was more than the physical punishment. It was the wrath of God that he experienced. Isaiah 53, 4, Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten, meaning killed, killed by God and afflicted. It was not the hands of sinful men that ultimately took the breath away from Jesus Christ. He was smitten by God. Isaiah 53, 10, Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. The Son of God was willing to have that love, the love that he had always experienced for eternity, a time period we cannot comprehend. That love, let's look at number three again there, Dan. The Father loves the Son. That line, if you understand that theologically, if you understand that line theologically, you understand so much of the Scripture. But you must understand that Jesus Christ at the cross had that line severed. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That was a cry of anguish as the father for the first and only time in all of history showed disfavor with the son, not because of anything the son had done wrong, not because there was sin in the son, but because Jesus Christ, the son, who took on to himself the sin of everyone who would ever be saved, and he paid for it. He bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. How great the pain of searing loss. The father turns his face away. That line was severed at the cross. Here's where we get to the epicenter of the gospel. You need to know something very important. God is not like Taylor Swift. He is not like Taylor Swift. Now, I don't like Taylor Swift's music particularly. I don't classify it necessarily as music. But there is one song that I particularly appreciate from her, not because I listen to it or enjoy it, because I don't, but because I think the message in it is actually really good. I'm not going to even let you guess what it is. I tried to let the students guess, and they picked all the wrong ones. But it's the one that says, we are never, ever, ever getting back together. I like that song because I think a lot of teenage girls need to say that to teenage boys. Welcome to Love Week, right? But if you put slide one back up there, Dan, you need to know that God could have, he was well within his rights to say that to the entire created universe. When Adam and Eve sinned and brought sin into the world, God was well within his rights just to sever that relationship entirely and eternally. We are never, ever, ever getting back together. I will never display love to you again. You are only forever going to experience my wrath. He would be well within his rights to do that, but God is not like Taylor Swift. He did not just stay outside of the circle. He sent his son into that circle to become part.
circle, to live within that circle, and to bring people that are inside of that circle out of that circle and into his love for eternity. Jesus promised that he would bring us into that Trinitarian love. John 14, 21. The one who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I too will love them and show, them, show myself to them. How? God has set that love upon you by bringing you into relationship with Jesus Christ. Now listen to what Jesus says in John 15, verse 9. As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Abide in my love. Do you see that little word as there? That is a really important word. Do not overlook small words. As the Father loved me, in the same way, to the same degree, at the same extent that my Father has loved you, loved me, I have loved you. That is the gospel. Christ loved us and he gave himself for us. On the night that he was betrayed, Jesus prayed for all the people that would ever be saved by praying to the Father, John 17, 22, the glory that you gave me, I have given to them, that they may be one even as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and notice the end, and loved them even as you loved me. Did you catch that? That if you are in Christ, you are loved by God the Father as much as the Son is loved by God the Father. Amen. Slide number three. Do you see the section right up there on the top right where it says the Son? You need to know that you are in that picture if you are a Christian. Not because you are the Son, but because you have been made alive together with him and you have become one with him. Not that you are God, but that you are joined together with Christ in union. Let me show you three ways the New Testament speaks about this. First, we see that we are to be found in Christ. One of the favorite ways that Paul particularly speaks about salvation is by using the term, that little phrase, in Christ. It shows up 92 times in the New Testament. I love my backpack, therefore whatever is in my backpack gets the benefits of my love. If, if I have my backpack and I display love to my backpack and I carry around that backpack and I delight in that backpack, whatever is in my backpack also experiences, therefore, my love. If you are in Christ, you get all the benefits of the love of the Father toward the, the Son. Let me just show you three verses that I think you know really well that just pop with power when you understand them inside of the paradigm of God's love for the Son that you are in Christ, Romans 6, 11. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God, how? In Christ Jesus, Romans 6, 23. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Romans chapter eight, verse one. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Just like I can put things into my backpack and I will carry them with me and I, they will receive my affection and my love because my backpack receives my affection and love in the same way. If you are in Christ, united with Christ in God, then you are in fact loved by God just as the son is loved by God. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 15 gives us another way to look at this. The second way that we'll focus on this is that he is the head and you are the body. Ephesians 4, 15 says, Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head into Christ. There's a lot of other verses that speak about us being the body and him being the head of the church. 
But have you ever had anyone say to you something like, well, I really like your face, but I don't like any of the rest of you. Yuck. Like, that's gross. Get away from me. If someone were to say something like that, then they don't actually love you. Whatever that's going on there is something else. That's weird. But <laughs> you need to know that God loves us in such a way that when he views the church, he views it and he says of it that Christ is your head and you are his body. You are that linked and joined together with him that you have become one in that sense. The third picture that I'll show you this morning of this is the picture of adoption. Now, if you understand adoption today, it's a little different than adoption in the days of Jesus. In fact, it was very rare for a child to be legally adopted when they were small. For now, most of the children who are adopted are infants or toddlers. In those days, most of the people that were adopted were in their older ages. And the reason is adoption was not about child care and parenting. It was about being an heir. So, for example, Julius Caesar adopted Octavian, who was later known as Caesar Augustus, he adopted him when he was 18 years old, and many people freaked out and said, he's too young to be adopted by you. He was too young because by being adopted, it meant that he became the heir of Julius Caesar. Romans 8.17 says, now if we are children, then we are heirs. Heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. Heirs of what? What are we going to inherit? Well, it's not earthly treasure. We are heirs of the blessing that come from the Father. You are eligible to receive the love and the blessing of God the Father if you have been adopted into the family as co-heirs with Christ. If you are in him, you are an heir with him. The best news ever, the epicenter of the gospel, is that even through the cross, it is through the cross, rather, that you have been made one with Christ. You can be in the place of enjoying eternal love of the Trinity. Slide three. If you are hidden with Christ in God, then you are to be receiving the love of God for all eternity. Christians, sometimes you freak out and you're like, does God really love me? I mean, I did something stupid today. I failed today. I sinned today. Does God even love me anymore? Are you in Christ? Then you have your answer. If you are in Christ, God loves you with an unbreakable, infinite, undiminishable love. There is nothing that anyone could ever do, yourself included, that would break that love. If you are a Christian, God has set his affection on you right now. This is not something that just has to wait until after you die. That affection is present. 1 John 3, 1 puts it like this. Behold what manner of love the Father has given to us. Pay attention to, set your focus on, lift your eyes to realize what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called sons of God, and so we are. Let's pray. God, we thank you that, that God loves God. We thank you that you have been loving within the Trinity forever, and we pray, Lord, that we would just slightly have a better understanding of that. Lord, help us to trust you and to understand you more. And I, I pray, Lord, for every person here that knows you, that we would be overwhelmed with joy and excitement and delight in knowing more about your attribute of eternal and infinite love. And we pray, Lord, that we would delight in seeing that that love has been set upon us, your children. We pray that if anyone in this room is not yet a child of God, Lord, that you would open their understanding, give them belief, give them faith, and help them to follow after Jesus Christ, your son, the one that you love. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.